Good morning. Would you please turn in your Bibles or your Bible app or what have you to Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Um, before Lindsay reads our passage, I'd like to briefly pray for the Spirit to illuminate our time together this morning. So pray with me, please. Uh, Father God, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes this morning. Help us to see wondrous things in your word. Help us to see Jesus more clearly and more gloriously this morning. We ask these things in his name. Amen. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in, a, in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Adam. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Appreciate it. I almost don't need to preach the sermon this morning because Philip did such a great job choosing those songs. We sang our way through that passage this morning through Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. If you listened to those songs, you heard, you heard help. You heard Jesus ruling, hail the glorious Christ. You heard family, God bring us to his family. We're going to talk about all of that uh, this morning as we go through this passage. Uh, I will keep going, though, uh, so you don't get to just skip out just singing the songs. I would think, though, take this passage and take those songs and go home today and meditate on those and just let them just fill your heart with praise and with joy. Um, on October 25th, 1944, there was a small naval battle off the Philippines. Several American ships were sunk, and that night as the sun went down, a number of American sailors were adrift on their rafts and wreckage. And after a couple of days, rescue hadn't come yet, and there they were, no food, no water, and started to get confused about what was going on. Being in salt water for two days will do that to you. And author James Hornfisher writes of one officer, Tom Stevenson was delighted now to discover a fresh water source that no one had seen before. The lieutenant became convinced that a fountain of cool, fresh water was right there for his pleasure. If only he could get below, his thirst would be slaked. 
What was going on? Tom Stevenson thought that his ship, which had been sunk hours before, was right just a few feet below him. And if he could just somehow swim down there, there would be a fountain of water just waiting for him, waiting to, f- to cool his thirst. He needed the help and rescue that water represented, but the question was, where would he find it? That's a question for me and for you today. The day after Christmas, what's still making you thirsty? What do you think would help you quench that thirst? Maybe you were hoping for a particular gift that would make a difference in your life. Maybe you're experiencing unmet expectations and relationships. With the new year just a week away, new resolutions offer us a chance to help ourselves out of the problems we're facing, at least until it's February 1st and you run out of energy to keep going. Whatever your particular situation, you and I share something in common today. I know I will experience temptation today. Maybe that's temptation to be angry with my kids, impatient with a friend, selfish with my time and energy. Um, I know that in some way, small or large suffering is going to be a part of my life too. And friends, that's true for you too. Suffering and temptation are disorienting experiences. They're confusing us. They send us looking for help in the most unhelpful places. In our passage today, God wants to reorient us in our search for help for all that we need. So here's the main point we'll see. Jesus became like us so that he can fully save us and powerfully help us. Let me say that again. Jesus became like us. That's the incarnation, right? That's the Christmas story. That's what we've been talking about for the last four weeks of Advent. Jesus became like us. Why? So that he could save us totally, completely save us, and so that he could help us, powerfully help you and help me in our suffering and temptation. So we're going to see this in three ways today, three ways that Jesus became like us to help us and to save us. First, we're going to look at verses 5 through 9, our suffering king. So look down at at that passage with me. Jesus became like us first to be our suffering king. Read with me beginning in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you were mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Here the author of Hebrews takes us all the way back in time, quoting from Psalm 8, written several thousand years before this, but even further back in time to Genesis chapter 1, where God created mankind to rule over his creation. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 8 verse 6, which is where Hebrews 2 quotes from. You have given man dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So did you see that? Humankind designed to rule over God's creation. But our passage in Hebrews tells us, though, our world is not like that today. Look back down at verse 8 of Hebrews 2. At present, at present, he says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, that is to humankind. David's vision in Psalm 8 isn't real yet. Our race, Adam's race, does not yet fully rule over this world. And doesn't your experience track with that? I mean, if the past 18 months have taught us anything, it's that very little, if anything, in this world is actually under our control. On a macro scale, it's viral pandemics, extreme weather events, massive wildfires here in California. On a more personal scale, maybe it's health issues. Maybe it's chronic illness or it's cancer. It's just growing old. Maybe it's a particular struggle with mental health that doesn't end, a job challenge, family concerns. One of a thousand things are just not under our control right now. We're still waiting. We're still waiting for that ruler 
from Genesis 1 and Psalm 8 who will have dominion over creation to fulfill God's purpose for the human race. This, this, this part of the passage is kind of like a cliffhanger in your favorite TV series. You know, you go on and then the, the show ends and you're waiting for what's going to happen next. Uh, beginning in the book of Genesis, we've watched thousands of years of, of episodes, if you will, starting with Adam and Eve. Every new character appears, we find ourselves thinking, all right, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is going to be the one who rules, who fulfills God's purpose. And at the end of every episode, we're disappointed. Um, I can identify with that feeling of kind of repeated expectation and disappointment. Uh, when I was in the Navy, the pinnacle of my career was supposed to be commanding a warship. I worked towards that for 20 years. And what happens is every December, this group of senior officers gets together, uh, and they look at records, and they choose the next batch of people to command a ship. And we get three chances, three opportunities to be selected there. So every December, every December for three years, I kind of watched the internet, watched the board results to come out, and every year that call I was waiting for never came. Disappointment after months of hopefulness. Maybe you can relate to that feeling too here at the end of verse 8. Disappointment after thousands of years of hopefulness. But if verse 8 is the dark end of the cliffhanger episode, verse 9 is the exact opposite. Let's see this together. Look down at verse 9 with me. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Listen to that again. But we see him, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and with honor. If this chapter was like a movie score, this is where the sad minor key of defeat suddenly becomes this major key anthem of triumph. You, you picture your favorite movie in your head, picture that kind of scene. For me, it's the second movie of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Two Towers. There's a scene, it's been a long night of fighting, they've been fighting orcs all night long in the pouring rain, and defeat seems inevitable. They're just about to overwhelm the good guys in their fortress, and just then, the wizard Gandalf appears at the top of a mountain with a fresh force of soldiers, and they charge down the hill with the sun coming up behind them, and they turn the tide of the battle. That's what verse 9 is picturing for us here. That's the picture here. We see Jesus, Jesus, the human like you and me, the one who was made lower than the angels. That's the Christmas story, baby Jesus in the manger. But now, now he's wearing a crown, wearing a crown of glory and of honor. At last, here's the ruler we've been waiting for. But he's a very unusual ruler, and he won his crown in a very unusual way. Look back at verse 9 with me. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus suffered death. Why? Look at verse 9 again. So that, hear the purpose there, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What does that mean for Jesus, to taste death for everyone? Well, this, is a, this is an imperfect illustration, but I'll give it a shot. Most of you are parents out here, so you should relate to this. You know, when your kids are really little, you give them hot food. And, but you don't want them to burn their mouths on it. So what do you do as a parent? Well, Melanie and I would take their food, you take a little bite of the food, and you blow on it. You cool it down with your breath, and then you taste it, right? You touch it with your tongue or with your lips. You make sure that that food isn't hot enough to burn your kid's mouth. That's a little bit of what Jesus did for us with death. He tasted it for us to make sure that it won't harm us when we go through it. Because Jesus, who is human like us, died on our behalf. We don't face death without hope. This is God's grace. Do you see it here? Jesus' death makes sure that death can't harm 
you. So what difference does this make for us today? How does it help us to know this, that he'd suffered like us, died, now reigns as king? I think there are two ways. First, Jesus helps us to make sense, to make sense of our present. We talked about this earlier. Suffering is confusing. When I suffer, my question is, why is this happening to me? Um, Luke 20, chapter 24, verse 26, the reason Jesus tells two of his disciples Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Did you hear the word Christ used there as disciples? Necessary. He said it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. There's purpose there. In her book, Prayer in the Night, Tish Tish Harrison Warren writes, Christians have always looked to suffering, not only as a place of pain, but as a place of meeting God. Suffering does not merely happen to us, It works in us. The letters in the New Testament are full of the idea that we're united to Christ in suffering, that we enter his story even in our own suffering. Just as Jesus was shaped by our suffering, we're shaped by our, excuse me, Jesus was shaped by his suffering, we are too. We don't suffer alone, but we suffer with Jesus who has already suffered for us. And there's there's so much more I would love to say there, but we got to move on from that. But seeing Jesus as our suffering king doesn't just help us make sense of our present. It also helps us see our future. You know, you know we often ask ourselves, you're having a conversation, hey, where do you see yourself in five years or ten years, right? Like, like what kind of business plans do you have? Where do you want to be in, in that time? But what, what if we asked, where do you see yourself in a thousand years or ten thousand? Where do you see yourself? Look back at verse 9 and see that we're told that Jesus, in verse 9, it says Jesus was made lower than the angels. That's the same way Psalm 8 describes us. When Jesus became incarnate and he became a human, he connected himself directly to us, directly to you and me, right here, right now. During his life on earth, Jesus experienced what we're experiencing right now. And because he identified so closely with us, we will one day experience what he is experiencing. So, in verse 9, do you see Jesus crowned with glory and honor? That's your future too. Christian sister and brother reigning with Christ, crowned with glory and honor. That's the first way that Jesus helps us, as our suffering king, making sense of our present and helping us see our future. So let's look at the second way that Jesus helps you and me this morning, verses 10 through 13. In those verses, in the next section of the passage, we see that Jesus became like us to be our sanctifying, it's a big long word, sanctifying, we'll talk about that in a second, brother. Read with me starting in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's, that's God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, now that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, verse 11 should really make us pause for a minute. Look again at what it says. Verse 11, that is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers not ashamed to call you and me his sisters and brothers? Now, can you identify with the experience of having someone be ashamed of you, of not want to be identified with you, maybe even someone in your own family? 
Well, like me, can you look inside yourself and find more than enough reasons why someone like Jesus would not want to be associated with me? So why isn't Jesus ashamed of us? Well, read again what verse 11 says, and I kind of like how the New International Reader's Version uh, translates this verse, verse 11. And Jesus, who makes people holy, and the people he makes holy, belong to the same family. Hear that again. We belong to the same family. So the words, that is why, answer our question. Jesus isn't ashamed of us because he's our brother, because we're in his family. But just because Jesus calls me brother doesn't mean I don't have anything to be ashamed of. I mean, there are things in my past and in my present that I ought to be ashamed of. Things I've said, things I've thought, things I've done. So does Jesus just choose to overlook all of that? No. Jesus isn't ashamed of us because he overlooks everything, but because he takes away everything we have to be ashamed about. Hear that again. Let me say that again. Let it affect you. Jesus takes away everything, everything that makes me and makes you ashamed. Look at how verse 11 describes Jesus and describes us. He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified. That's how Jesus helps us, by sanctifying us. So kids, you're probably like, I can't even spell that. I don't know what it means. Um, It's a big theological word. It means being made clean, being made holy. And we see this pictured for us in some of Jesus' healing miracles in the Gospels. Turn, why don't you turn over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, verse 12, and we're going to see briefly one of those occasions. We're going to get a picture of what sanctification looks like. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. There came a man, came a man to Jesus, full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. All right, get the picture here. We've all talked about leprosy before, but look, this guy is desperate. Like, he is completely cut off from his community. No one wants even to be around him, let alone to touch him, because they're afraid if they do, they're going to get as dirty as he is. They're going to get cast out too. Um, but what happens? Luke goes on. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean, and immediately the leprosy left him. That's sanctification. Jesus isn't ashamed to be near this unclean man. He's not even ashamed to touch him. Instead, he reaches out, touches him, and takes away his disease. That's what Jesus does for you and for me. He, instead of being ashamed to come close to us, he touches us, he takes away our sinfulness, he makes us clean. So when doubts come into your mind, when Satan reminds you of your sin, or when your own heart or even someone else's voice reminds you again of all that you have to be ashamed of, look at Jesus, your sanctifying brother who welcomes you, welcomes us into his family. So now let's look at the last part of the passage, verses 14 through 18. So far, we've seen that Jesus became like us to be our suffering king, our sanctifying brother. The last verses of this chapter, we see that Jesus became like us to be our saving priest. He became like us, took on our nature, completely like us, to be our saving priest. Let's see this in verse 14, first of all. Since therefore, verse 14, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. And again in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. 
There's a scene in the 1984 movie Terminator where the two characters are talking. The one's describing this new Terminator cyborg who's shown up. He says he's living flesh on the outside, but he's a machine inside. He looked human, but he wasn't human. And that is not how Jesus is. Jesus doesn't just appear to be human on the outside, look like one of us while on the inside. He's totally different. No, Jesus is both truly human and fully divine. We've been, for the last four weeks, we've been going through the Athanasian Creed, and I forgot to grab it and write it down up here, but that's exactly what we have been reminding ourselves of for the last four weeks in that creed is that Jesus is both all completely like us and fully divine, fully God. Um, He did not inherit our sinful nature, but in every other way he was made like us. But why? Why did he have to become a human? Why did that have to happen? I think there's a couple reasons. Verse 15 gives us one reason. One reason Jesus had to become human was he had to die as a human so that he could fully save us. That's one of our main points. Jesus could fully save us. He had to die as a human. Look at verse 15 again. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, notice the purpose word again, that or so that, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus saves us from the hold that fearing death has on us. And I think that's more than just being afraid of physical death. I mean, there's, uh, I think Josh reminded me of one famous quote, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. You know, it's not, this is deeper than that. This is, this is not just being afraid of like what it's going to feel like, but this is being afraid of being lost forever, of being outside God's family. And that fear controls us, it drives us until Jesus comes. Jesus came and died without that fear. Jesus was never afraid of being outside God's family. He always knew that he was God's beloved son. He came and he died without that fear so that he could destroy the power that that fear had over us. And here's one way that looks like in real life. I was just talking to Tab this week about the memorial service last Sunday that he did for Pearl Gantius, our friend, and a comment that one of her relatives made to him, her, his, her grandson's wife said, Pearl was eager for heaven. She was never afraid of death, and she lived her life that way, boldly for Jesus. And I was just talking to Linda this morning. She said Pearl would just relate, relate to everybody, ready to tell them about Jesus. She wasn't afraid. That's what being saved from the fear of death can look like for you and for me. But that's not the only thing we need to be saved of. That's a great thing. Being saved from the fear of death is not the only thing we need to be saved from. We also need to be saved from the penalty of our sin. Look at verse 17 with me. Verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that, and I do appreciate the author of the Hebrews, he puts these phrases in there so we know exactly why he's doing things. All right, so that Jesus might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Our sins stand between us and God. If we are not followers of Jesus this morning, our sins stand, your sin stands between you and God. It invites his just punishment. So what does propitiation mean? What does it mean for Jesus to make propitiation as a human for our sins? Um, If you've ever lived somewhere in the world where there are tall buildings or lightning storms, you've probably seen these large metal rods. They're called lightning rods. It's a 
aptly named, and they're designed to absorb a lightning strike. The, the whole point is that the lightning hits the metal rod. It doesn't hit the building. It keeps the building from being destroyed by the storm. That's what propitiation is. Jesus acted like a lightning rod. He absorbed God's wrath for us so that we wouldn't be destroyed ourselves. By dying as a human, by dying as one of us, Jesus saved us from the punishment that we all, each one of us, me and you, deserved. So Jesus can fully save us because he died as a human, as one of us. And the last part of this passage shows us one last reason Jesus had to become human. Jesus had to be tempted as a human so he could powerfully help us. This is, for me, maybe the most poignant part of this passage, the most personal part. Jesus had to be tempted as a human so that he could powerfully help us. Look at verse 18 with me. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to temp help those who are being tempted. Did you see that? Listen to that again. He is able to help, to help those who are being tempted. This week, I'm going to face temptation. So are you. That experience of temptation is going to cause us to suffer in some way. And when that happens, we're going to run somewhere for help. We're going to look for relief somewhere. And the question is, where is that going to be? I know the first place I often look is inside myself, to my own willpower or determination. We're all good Americans. We've all read Ben, ben Franklin. God helps those who help themselves, right? That's not what this passage teaches. This passage teaches God helps those who cannot possibly help themselves. Maybe you tend to look for help in distraction. Maybe you seek relief by flirting with that temptation a little bit or even just giving into it so it just stops and goes away. But we all know, don't we? We all know that those forms of help are deceptive. They don't give us any relief. Have you ever gotten relief from just trying a little bit harder, maybe giving into that temptation? In chapter 4 of Hebrews, just a couple pages over, we get an idea of the help Jesus gives. Just listen to the words of Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Just think of how sweet that is, that Jesus, our Lord, has been tempted just like we are, but never sinned. Here's Jesus, our priest, tempted in every respect. So what do we do with our temptation? Verse 16 tells us, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. Grace to help us in our time of need. That, that is where I need to run to temptation this week. And that's where you need to go to is to the throne of grace where there is mercy and there is grace ready to help you because Jesus experienced that temptation first. So that's the message of this portion of Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus became like us, like you and me, so that he can fully, completely save us and powerfully. Jesus can powerfully help you and me. He suffered like us and for us to take away the power of death. He calls us his family. He makes us perfectly holy. And he saves us from the punishment we deserve, helping us when we're tempted to sin. So, how do we respond to that good news this morning? How will I respond when temptation and suffering come my way this week? 
I and you will run somewhere for help. Maybe I'll try to escape to isolation. We'll just go to my room and close the door for a little bit. Maybe do a fantasy world where things are better, or even just pick up a book and just bury myself in that for a while. Anywhere I can pretend that there are no troubles for a while. It might look different for you. Maybe it's binging Netflix. Maybe it's diving deep into social media. Maybe it's in a busy schedule. Maybe if I just get busier, it won't hurt so much, or I won't be so tempted if I just fill my schedule with things to do. Maybe it's darker. Maybe it's drugs or alcohol that you hope will numb the pain for just a little bit. Those things that we run to are like the fountain of cool water that Tom Stevenson thought he saw just a few feet below him on his sunken ship. They weren't there. They're illusions. Those things will not help us. Maybe for a few minutes they will, but they won't help us lastingly. Um, if Tom had followed so many of his shipmates toward the fresh water he thought was below him, he would not have found help. Instead, he would have drowned, trying to find help that would never appear. Thankfully, fortunately for him, he had help from some other more clear-headed sailors who convinced him, who helped him to stay on their raft and Pretty soon, the next day, they were rescued by the ships that were out there looking for them. It's just like us this morning. If we chase those things that we think will offer us help in suffering or temptation, we're going to find that they don't actually give us what we're so thirsty for. Instead, God calls us to run to Jesus when we are tempted. When we're suffering, run to Jesus. And you know, he also calls us in some ways, he calls each one of us, you and me, to be for each other like those clear-headed sailors that kept Tom Stevenson from drifting away from his raft. Let's, let's do that for each other. Or let's watch out for each other when we start looking for help where it will never be found. Let's remind our sisters and brothers that Jesus is the only place that we can find true and lasting help. Perhaps you're here and you aren't a follower of Jesus yet. God is calling to you too. He's calling out to you to turn away from your own way and to come to Jesus to save you from the penalty of your sin and bring you into God's family. So this is the message of the incarnation. Sign up the day after Christmas. It's still kind of a Christmas sermon. Jesus took on our human nature so that he was able to save us and help us whenever, whenever we're in need. So this week, today, when you're tempted or when you're suffering, don't run away from Jesus. Run to Jesus, run to him who can powerfully help you and fully save you. Let's pray. Father God, you sent your son to lead us into salvation. We pray that you would give us grace this morning to turn to him for the help and salvation that we need. Give us the grace and mercy to turn away from false comforters and to help us look to Jesus to find all that we need. We pray this in the name of Jesus, your Son, who reigns with you in the Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you, brother, for that encouraging look to Christ, our brother, the one who helps us and saves us.